Welcome to episode 16 of the Give Us Time podcast, the podcast that highlights the extraordinary members of our armed forces and their families. This episode, we have a fantastic guest. He served in the Black Watch, and during his 10 years in the army, he served in Kosovo and Iraq. On leaving the army, he requalified as a doctor and continues serving as a doctor to this day during the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. So we are honoured to welcome former Lieutenant Colonel Nick Ord to the podcast. Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted. And joining us, as always, is Give Us Time Managing Director Rupert Forrest. So, Rupert, thank you so much for joining us as well. Uh, a pleasure once more, yeah. And Nick, um, do you mind just quickly going and telling us, Nick, um, about uh, where you went and grew up, what it was like for you as a kid? Um, so I, I was what I now describe as an international vagabond. Um, so my, my father was in the armed forces. So um, we moved around the world every couple of years. Um, so I, I, I was born up in Inverness, um, but we then moved shortly after that to Nepal for a couple of years, back to Southern England, uh, spent a good few years in uh, Western Germany in, in, during the sort of time of the, towards the end of the Cold War, then back to England for a bit, uh, lived in Saudi Arabia for a couple of years, lived in America briefly. Um, so a sort of international lifestyle moving around uh, as part or moving around as a family with my father's work in the army oh wow brilliant so what kind of impact did that have on you then as a kid being able to see all these amazing places i think um it, it's really interesting how you sort of view it how i look back at that and how, and how i have looked back at that at different times in my life certainly as a child it felt very exotic um you know going uh, jetting off and to all these places and um seeing different sort of cultures and there were times where um, it felt as if we were always on a sort of overseas holiday as opposed to going home it felt very exciting um, because of because the army recognizes the need for children to have a stable education when serving members of the armed forces are overseas we were at school in the UK and so but we flew out to all these destinations for the holidays and that that, that felt very exciting um, and it I didn't realise that that was relatively um, unusual lifestyle at the time. It seemed normal, um, but I think as I as I sort of became a sort of teenager and and um, looking back, certainly from my early twenties, sometimes I felt that um, it can it can produce a bit of disconnect. You have your sort of home life in these fantastic locations, um, and and one sort of school life, which can be quite quite sort of separate sometimes. Um, I mean, overall, it suited me very well. It, I think it made me quite sort of independent. Um, and, it, and I'm sure it shaped various things I've done in my life. Oh, wow. Absolutely fantastic. So what made you then want to go and join the military? Was it from growing up? Was it your dad's influence? Um, or was it just the, you know, this uh, this um, jet? I, I, I don't want to say jet setting lifestyle. But, um, but you know, this, this traveling lifestyle that you had. <laughs> I think uh, I think jet setting is probably the wrong word, you know, uh, <laughs> flying around in a 1970s uh, DC-7 jet is uh, with a sort of not the best pat lunch and a whole load of other <laughs> school kids, probably as glamorous as I made it out to be. Um, I, I think um, I think it's a combination of factors, you know, because my father was in the army, I knew I, I guess I knew more about it. I was exposed to um, the reality of the job that, that involved. And I think that probably made it more likely that I would that, that I would uh, pursue a career in the army. Um, but as well as that, I you know I, I I I was I was dead set from a very early life that I wasn't going to work in an office. 
I enjoyed um, I enjoyed uh, uh, sport and I enjoyed running around in the hills and the big outdoors and camping in cold, wet places in Scotland was something which I always kind of took a bit of a shining to. Um, and so I think the combination of those two things and then also as a sort of late teen teenager, I felt I really wanted to do something that's um, a, a service type job where you're actually doing something for perhaps, you know, perhaps sort of greater ideals or for society at large. And these sort of things came together, I think, quite naturally with, with wanting to join the army. Oh, I mean, a great answer, really, a great answer. <laughs> I just want to know then, I mean, we've spoken to, you know, Rupert's told us, um, Scotty, our other ambassadors told us, how did you find it, you know, joining the army? What was it like for you? Was it a big culture shock for you? Um, how did you find it? I think, I think no matter how much one knows about it beforehand, there is a, there is a sort of culture shock. Um, and, uh, you know, the, there is, a, as with any job, there's a difference between what one has to do to go through the training and and life actually living that job um i mean they're actually joining you know so i i i joined as an officer and, and um after university i spent a year doing my military training at the royal military academy sandhurst and after a i'll be entirely honest relatively standard student life where i kind of wasn't the most industrious person um it is always a shock you know getting up at six o'clock every morning having every hour taken up and until at least midnight being kept busy running around learning new skills it is always a it is always a shock no matter how much one think one think one one knows about it um but certainly what what sort of makes that shock entirely entirely sort of manageable and absorbable is is the people that you're in that situation with um you know mucking in with people we've all coming from diverse backgrounds um, make all go through that similar sort of life change from our former life to joining the army. Um, they are the they are the biggest factor in in managing that shock and getting through. And of course, you form lifelong friendships as a result. Oh, brilliant! What made you want to go and join the um, the Black Watch? And if you don't mind going and telling, I know um, Rupert spoke at episode one about what the Black Watch is. Do you mind just I'm looking very nervous? <laughs> do you just do you just mind going and telling also our listeners um reminding them what the black watch is okay so certainly so um it is it is nothing to do with game of thrones as as some people have actually sort of suggested it sounds like very sort of a <laughs> medieval warrior type organization it really um, does. So, so the black a <laughs> is a is regiment in the british army um, it's it's part of what's called the infantry, so that's what most people think of um, as soldiers doing. So essentially, that's the frontline part of the army um, that people naturally think of. Though, of course, the army has every other sort of uh, it has every other sort of um, career opportunity to engineering, logistics, personnel support, um, all these sort of things. But the infantry is part of the combat branch of the army, and so that's what people most naturally think soldiers soldiers do there are about 40 or so infantry regiments um and they all trace their um, historical lineage back to previous times um and the the black watch is was part of or at the time was part of what's called the, was the scottish division which has now become the royal regiment of scotland um and so the black watch traditionally 
uh, for over you know over 250 years have recruited from uh, sort of southern central uh, Scotland areas around Perthshire, Angus and Fife um, and um, obviously over the last couple hundred years took part in various campaigns and conflicts all around all, all around the world. Um, the, re the reason I joined them was was I, I think my sort of family Scottish links as it were so my father had or served at the time in another Scottish regiment called the Gordon Highlanders. I was born in Inverness uh, up in the Highlands of Scotland, despite the fact that my accent doesn't really suggest that. And, um, and living in Scotland for quite a while, wanting to very much sort of be at the sort of, the, at a sort of forefront, exciting part of the army. Um, I was drawn towards the infantry and to had a sort of Scottish heritage link into, into a Scottish regiment. I mean, makes perfect sense, really. I think that's what I liked as well. I think, you know... I like how, you know, if you have a heritage from there, that's, you know, one of the reasons. And it is obviously, as you went and, you know, made that comment, it does sound very Game of Thronesy. <laughs> There's the name, the Black Watch. <laughs> I mean, it is bizarre. I sort of, um, you know, I sort of discussing with colleagues in my, in my job as a doctor now and every, and, um, you know, you talk about people, you naturally spend a lot of time talking about your colleagues' lives and what they've done and, somehow this sort of cropped up in conversation and and then people immediately say oh that sounds like a a, a, a sort of guard organization from the game of thrones but it but in some in some there's an element of truth to that in that the black watch were formed um in the 18th century to to police or guard uh scotland uh, 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 and the highlands when there were when there were um sort of political and military uh, wranglings there so oh wow um, and we <laughs> Hence, hence watch, as in watch over, um, and black, where we call the black watch because the tartan is a very dark tartan. Um, there's no red, there's no yellow, and there's a very dark blues and greens with blacks in it. So, so that's how that's how they became known as uh, the black watch. Oh, brilliant! What was it like then being um, welcomed in and joining such an, I mean, a prestigious <laughs> regiment? I'm assuming I could see from Rufus laughing. I'm assuming there was some some level of hazing that was involved. <laughs> well, I think it's. I mean, I, I, um, I mean, I actually loved it. I, whilst at university um, in my early twenties, I went out and visited the regiment a couple of times for a month or so over the summer, um, and that took me to uh, a large exercise in Canada, a military exercise in Canada in 1992. Um, and then I visited the regiment in, when they're in Hong Kong in 93 and 94 for a month or so whilst mm -hmm. at university. And so what that meant was I, I got to know people who would be my future colleagues. Um, and I got a, um, I, I, uh, you know, such a warm welcome, such a warm welcome. The Blackwatch prides itself on being a very family orientated regiment and um, where everyone looks after each other and looks out for each other. And, and I, I just... I, I just felt so very much at home there, I think is perhaps one way of describing it. And I'm sure anyone from from any other part of the British Army will will, des will describe a, uh, a similar warmth of of welcome. Oh, well, Rupert, do you want to go and, you know, talk about, I mean, you know, same question to you, really, of when you got into the Black, when you became part of the Black Watch. Yeah, well, it, it's very similar, actually. I'd, I'd been out to visit them in uh, Berlin, Germany. And... Um, they they were just like-minded i think i think most regiments and certainly the the black watch 
you get interviewed for your suitability. So what, what they do in that interview is not so much, I mean, clearly you've got to be passing all your military stuff, but it's actually about whether you're a good family fit, whether you're going to mix in. So that sort of careful selection pays off. And I don't think there are ever any surprises. I can't think of any, Nick, can you? Give people who went, oh, God, this isn't for me. Uh, we were, you know, we were just, oh, there's another person a bit like me, really. You know, we've got similar backgrounds. Um, the friends network is similar. Some people are being schooled together. In fact, it was one of the first questions one of my soldiers asked was, who did you go to school with? Not where, but who did you go to school with? And I went, well, they're a bit older than me, but uh, Captain Coles, Captain Watson, and they went, yeah, come and they got, and you know, they got who I was as well. So it wasn't just to make sure the officer's mess was happy. It was about the whole regiment and, and the whole regiment having that family uh, contact. I mean, years ago, when we were really well recruiting the army and I was at the depot, uh, we used to do badging boards, a bit like Sandhurst, really. Uh, and these guys would come in and say, I want John Blackwatch. And you'd go, that's great. Have you got any family in it? And they'd go... No. Uh, and I'd go, OK, what other reasons? Go to the back of the queue. And, you know, we'd have, say, five slots for the regiment. Uh, and if four of them had family connections, they got in. Uh, and then, you know, it was the cream of the crop from the rest. And that, that meant there was cohesion from all the way from the youngest private soldier all the way through to the commanding officer. Uh, and that was great. And it made life really easy, I think, Nick, didn't it? I'd agree with that totally. Yeah. So it's about fitting in with people and, you know, given not just when one is training and in barracks and leading a relatively sort of calm um, military life. But yeah, it's, it's more, it's so that when we have to go and do the difficult things that the army does do, we know we can fit in, work with people, rely on them, trust them, um, and therefore be able to achieve collectively what it is we want to do. Absolutely. Oh, so moving forward then, why um where was your first deployment to was it to kosovo or was it um to northern ireland where where was it to that's right so so um in the summer of 2001 uh we went to kosovo for six months from germany so the black watch had moved to germany uh about a year beforehand as part of um sort of ongoing changeover of where british army regiments serve um and so we went to kosovo for six months in the so the tail end of 2001 um, and that was a couple of years after the operation had started in, in Kosovo but so we, we were in Pristina in, in the centre of Kosovo um, yeah oh, that yeah. was my first yeah what was that like then your first experience um, um, in you know, you know well, a foreign country as well obviously you've been traveling all over the world you know throughout your entire life but this is a, a different experience entirely what was it like I, I think that's exactly right. You know, in some in some ways, getting on a plane to another country somewhere connected to the army seemed very similar. But because I was doing it in a professional capacity and as an adult, as part of the British Army, it was it was also uh, you know very very different. Um, in terms of the the sort of the physical and the mental disruption to life, as in going from where we lived to another country, uprooted to a different pattern of life, I, I found that adjustment relatively easy because in some ways I'd done that throughout my life but it was a fascinating 
I mean, I, I absolutely loved our time in Kosovo. It was the sixth, it was called, uh, so the, the British military operation was Operation Agricola uh, in Kosovo. Um, and it was the sixth iteration of that. Um, so, and each tour generally lasts about six months. So the British Army had been in Kosovo for about two and a half years by then. Um, and it was a very, um, it, it was a benign environment and it wasn't uh, war fighting. It, perhaps you could say it wasn't even uh, peacekeeping, but it's more to do with supporting uh, the Kosovo police, uh, supporting uh, relations between different, um, perhaps different ethnic groups and different organizations in Kosovo. And it was, it was incredible. I mean, it was, um, you know, catapulted from my life into, into the midst of an international, um, you know, conflict is not the right word, but in it, a, a matter that yeah. is at an international level around the world. Um, so it was, uh, I mean, I loved it. I had a fantastic time out there and it was great to be, um, you know, ser serving professionally in the British army for the good of others around the world. Yeah. Yeah. So then after that, moving forward, you then went to Iraq. What year was that then? That was 2003. So, yeah. um, so, so we, so yes. So we flew to Kuwait in, um, it was the middle, middle of February, 2003. Um, and that was again from Germany. Um, and that was part of, uh, Seven Armoured Brigade, which was four regiments or so, which formed a larger part of uh, the first UK Armoured Division, who were part of the coalition for Iraq in 2003. Um, and we trained and prepared in Kuwait for a number of weeks. Um, and then we crossed the border. Um, I think it was a, I think it was the 22nd of March, 2003, uh, into the, the, the British area or what became the British area um, around the towns of uh, Basra and Azubaya. Just, just, I'm um, 30 miles across from the Kuwaiti border. Wow, what was that like? Because that is a completely different experience in every sense. You know, of you know, you've gone from Europe where into the Middle East, a completely different environment. Um, obviously, the you know the army had you know been there previously in the first Iraq War. Um, what what was it like from your perspective being there for the second one? Um. Gosh, it's a, that's a big question. Um, I think you know, one, one, um, uh, it was so different in every way. I mean, physically, the environment was just was just so different, even even in February. And obviously, the desert at night can be extremely cold at any time of year. Um, but I remember there's one moment that really, really, I really remember really clearly. We we got off the plate. We we landed in Kuwait. Then we went. We then got on a bus and were driven up north towards a northern areas of Kuwait, very close to the, the border with Iraq. And as the bus turned around the corner, the sun was coming up um, uh, to the east and we were just hit through the, through the bus by this wave of heat. It was, it was just like opening, it was like opening the oven door when your head's too close and you just get that. And it was, this, it was a very odd moment. Um, it was just so, such intense heat. And so fr from, very early on, there was this sort of physical aspect that was quite unusual. And it takes a long time to acclimatize to the heat. And I, I prefer a bit of cold weather suffering probably. And I, I you know, I, I like my cold mountains and I prefer probably being sort of cold and wet and happy, even if I'm feeling slightly miserable. So, so I, I found the adaptation to the desert and the heat um, harder than I expected it, definitely. It takes quite a while to adapt to that environment. Um, but then I think, 
by contrast to what we'd experienced in Kosovo, there was so much uncertainty. Kosovo had been a relatively established and, as I said, quite a benign operation by then. Whereas we had um, really individually and collectively no idea what was going to happen. Um, we knew what we were going to be doing, but the outcome was, uh, you know, uncertain. And in some ways, um, in some ways, life becomes very simple. And what I mean by that is not what we had to do was simple at all, but everyday concerns about mortgage and home and when the car insurance is and these kind of things just sort of just get paired away and life becomes very simple in terms of looking after the people you're with and um, making sure they're okay, doing whatever we had to do, eating, sleeping and drinking. And life becomes very um, sort of caveman, sort of pared down human existence in some ways. So it's a very, it's a, overall, I mean, it's, it's a, it, it was a huge, it was a massive experience in so many different ways. So, that, yeah, I mean, that sounds, you know, were you aware at the time of how big, you know, this was around the world, the kind of the, you know, the, you know, you spoke about, um, uh, um, you know, being in Kosovo, but this, you know, the whole eyes of the world were, were, were on you at this moment. Were, were you all aware of that? Um, yeah, yeah, yes, we were. Yeah. I mean, it had been building up in the international community for some time. Um, it became increasingly obvious that the British army was probably heading towards that part of the world. Um, and yeah, we were very conscious of whilst we had to prepare, a, you know, we had all do all sorts of things to prepare for what we were going to be asked to do. Um, and whilst we didn't necessarily have a huge amount of contact with what was going on in the press around the world, uh, very much that sense, very, you know, very much that sense that this was a significant history altering period of time that was about to unfold. And, and despite life being very simple in the way I described, we were also very much, yeah, very aware of that. Yeah. 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 How long were you um, in Iraq for then? Was it, um, is it one tour, two tours? So, um, so, our, so my first tour ended, I think, I think I flew out of Iraq on first, I think it was early in July, 2003. So for about, for about five months. Hmm. Uh, and that was mainly around Basra and the Southern zone. Um, and then the Blackwatch went back to Iraq just over a year later um, for another six months from about July to December of 2004. How, how different were those two tours then for how much of a change was there in that year in that year long time um I, I, there was a significant change very significant change i think um you know the when we went back to be around basra the second time 2004 um things were a lot hairier mm. um you know the i remember being able to when we let when i left iraq in 2003 most parts or about 80 percent of basra i would happily drive around in a land rover with a couple of other people maybe with one other vehicle because um you know it was safe enough to do that things had changed within a year um and uh, it was more dangerous there were more fatalities um and uh it was harder to move around it would require going in larger formations of people with armored vehicles and things so, so, so it had changed quite significantly yeah yeah so was that um so you did two tours of iraq then 
Um, and then, and then, did you then decide to go and leave the military? Was that a catalyst for going and and leaving, or was you know, or did you just know, you know, when your time, when you want to leave, you just thought this is you know a good a good time? I think, I think, I think several things sort of came together um, at, at at what's at the sort of right time, and I, um, I, I actually loved my time in the regular army. Um, I always, I, I sort of had this sense that I, I was perhaps going to take a different track in life at some stage. Mm. Um, I would, uh, and I always wanted to, I always wanted to leave the regular army happy. I think the worst thing anyone can do in any organisation is um, want to leave, but not leave and hang around. And uh, you know, people can become a little bit counterproductive. I think, and I didn't want to be a bad smell. I wanted, I wanted mm. to leave at a time when I felt I'd had some you know very rich experiences from the army and felt good about what I'd done and I'd had the, I'd had a sort of slightly weird idea in the back of my head for a number of years that maybe I wanted to be a doctor and it was weird because I'm not scientific like um, I gave up chemistry and biology and things when I was 16 at school and I was very happy in the army and I, I loved it and it seemed it seemed a long shot to convince myself to go and do something so different when I was loving doing what I was doing in the army. But um, after after operations in Costa and Iraq, I felt that I'd, you know, been part of something big and important around the world. And I felt personally that it was, I'd got a lot out of that and I could leave happily and take a different career track. I mean, what was it like leaving? Because well, I ask this question to every guest and everyone says, you know, um, the the change onto civvy street is a big one um yeah. how how did you find that adjustment it, it is it is huge it, it it is always huge and um it's always huge and it can affect people in ways they don't expect and it can affect people in times they don't expect i i left with a real sense of purpose in this i you know i'd applied to medical i i got into a medical school in scotland I knew where I was going. I knew that I was committing myself to um, a, a significant amount of study, a, a lifestyle change in terms of, um, you know, going from having a professional salary to a reduced salary. Um, so it, it was mixed. You know, I had a sense of purpose but, and I enjoyed my time at medical school, but I found life very difficult for a couple of years, actually. Uh, extremely difficult. And I think um, a lot of people do. And my sort of, my difficulties were around, I think sort of um, my sort of sense of identity. And then I, so I started at medical school when I was 33. Um, I was, I wasn't the oldest on the course, but I was one of the older people. And, you know, um, and I, I found it sort of, the word I use is unhinging. I, I found it unusual going from being of a certain uh, position in the army with with a certain sort of status in a large organization and a certain clearly defined role and under to to going back to being a student at a time in my life where I was you know I, I saw myself as a professional person that's quite a sort of dislocating sort of identity really um and and things were very very difficult actually for for a couple of years um and I hadn't expected it. I thought oh, this is going to be plain sailing. I've, I've worked out where I'm going into a new career. It'll just be fine. And I think perhaps a lot of people have similar experiences with, with that.
it catches up on you in different ways. Well, I mean, this kind of leads on well to my next question is what advice would you give anyone who is who has made that switch onto Civvy Street? Um, I would say, I would say the, to sort of focus on the deeper issues and not necessarily the obvious issues. And perhaps what I mean by that is, you know, any transition from the military to another working life into another life, there's going to be a certain, there's going to be a professional adjustment. We're probably all going to take a, a chain, a, you know, loss in salary for a certain amount of time. And those are the things people naturally think of. And they're right to think about that. We have to think about how that's going to impact on our families and, and various things. But actually, you know, people do, or people can often become established in whatever career they go into, but they, they've got, I think the really, you can't anticipate when it's going to hit you and how it does. But I think looking back, I wish people had advised me to, you know, really consider how I would deal with things if things became very difficult. And in some ways, that's a very difficult question to answer because you don't know what the difficulties are going to be and you don't know how you're going to react to them. But it ties in with what Rupert was saying, I think, about the, you know, the family support that we all derive from each other in the military helps us. It cushions us from certain difficulties and it helps us deal with certain difficulties. And then when people are suddenly catapulted into the rest of the world and into a more normal life, you can feel quite alone and you can feel despite a strong network. Um, so I think, you know, one, it's a balance between not dwelling excessively on bad things or difficulties that might have difficulties that might happen, but certainly, you know, bracing oneself and thinking about how one can establish a similar support network, but different from the, to sort of to deal with the unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Um, so Nick, what was it like then going from Iraq to then becoming a doctor? Massive shift. What was it like for you? How did you find it? Um, I, so I, I was 39, nearly 40 when I qualified from medical school. And I'd, um, I was just relieved to get to the end of medical school. I, I would <laughs> Um, how, how long is medical school sorry how long is it that's a good question it should have been five years for me I, I i had a i had a couple of bad years in my life i failed some exams and i was asked to resit a year as a result so i um i, I joke now i loved it so much that i extended it to six years the reality <laughs> is I, it was extended in my best interests <laughs> um so, so so yeah i was I, so i took me six years to get through medical school um and so i 39 by the time I started as a junior doctor what I found difficult was being a 39 year old with albeit a very different life experience but I was you know used to working hard making quite complex and then dangerous not sorry not dangerous decisions but decisions where there is risk involved and and I found the the sort of early life as a junior doctor um quite challenging i think in that um starting again at the right at the very bottom of a professional pile age 39 just from a personal angle is unusual um and you know the the nhs needs a lot of junior doctors who can do manage patients and wards and do all sorts of things um where 
perhaps early on, they're not so much directing the course of things, but following the direction from senior consultants and things. And that's absolutely appropriate. And uh, being 39 at the time, I, fe I felt I, I was often sort of itching to, to progress to a more grade and more senior role. So that sounds incredibly hard. Was any of that uh, resilience that you learned was that was we in you know in in the military? Were you able to apply that to to uh, to your current situation? I, I, yeah, definitely, definitely it helped. I mean, I I, I think um, if if I'd gone to medical school, you know, when I was eighteen, and if I'd started as a twenty-two-year-old, I would have found the the sort of the um, responsibility and the um, the hours and, and the relentless pace of being a junior doctor, I would think I would probably find that quite challenging. Now, that's not to say it wasn't in the army, but it was it was just an overall a slightly different situation. Um, I think the, you know, I was, uh, I'm very happy working hard. I'm, uh, I mean, people who know me well would probably suggest that if I'm, if I'm not kept busy and not occupied, I can become a bit of a nightmare. So <laughs> it was, um, <laughs> um but I think, um, yeah, I, I, the, you know, it, it was a junior doctors do work immensely hard. Uh, there's no doubt about that. The sort of horror stories of 120 hour weeks are no longer correctly and no longer the case, but it can be a very relentless job in terms of long hours in hospital. And there's a there's an aspect which I think people aren't so much aware of. It, there's a, a relentless toll on oneself when one is... Um, doing so much to help others and get them through a difficult time that is that is emotionally very draining as well and whilst it was a very different environment from being in the military in some ways it was the same you know cognitively and emotionally it was the same thing i think in terms of um in terms of in terms of i felt i felt comfortable in that sort of slightly uncomfortable environment if that makes sense yeah. i felt comfortable the weight of the decisions and i felt comfortable I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, but I felt comfortable being exhausted a lot of the time because I experienced that in time. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I can see, I can completely understand what you're saying in terms of these similarities, you know, the the work hours, the, I mean, in my mind, you know, the military, being, you know, being in the military and being a doctor, two of the most stressful jobs. I mean, you picked two of the most stressful jobs. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's I don't have much hair on top of my head anymore, I think, yeah. <laughs> um obviously it's been a you know the, this past year has been a massive shock all, all around the world with the ongoing coronavirus pandemic what is it what has it been like for you you know uh, rupert said it beforehand you went from one front line to another what was that what was that like um gosh um yeah, sorry about it's, that. I've said a really big question. I'm so sorry. <laughs> to organize, I, have, I have so many thoughts on this, and I, I need to try and sort of organise them in some sort of sense. Um, I think, you know, in, in again, in some ways, it was it was a similar situation for me, as it. So I, I've chosen to work in accident and emergency. That that's where I feel I fit in in the NHS, and where I feel my skill set is. Um, and accident and emergency was very much sort of the front line as were well, our partners in acute, what's what we call acute medicine um, in, in hospitals, very much part of it. Um, I, in some ways, part of me, 
when we could see things being to change in the NHS and in the hospital, part of me was this is exactly the same as going to Iraq. And now, in some ways, totally different, but in terms of a, a, it being obvious that a new significant period of life was going to come upon us, be forced upon us, um, when it was very sort of unknown how it was going to be, very unknown exactly how severe it was going to be, with a completely unknown duration. Um, so in some ways, again, it, it, I, felt, I felt comfortable in this sort of uncomfortable feeling of it. Um, but it, you know, the, the flip side is we knew that as long as we came back from Iraq alive, we would be there for five, six months at a time. We're over a year into it. We still don't know how it's going to, how long it's going to be with us. And so in some ways, whilst the risk to us individually is significantly less than it was in, you know, overseas in Iraq and things, there is this, you can see a mental effect on colleagues in terms of, and myself, in terms of um, long-term fatigue and um, the, the sense that um, we just don't know how long this is going to be with us. Yeah. Probably forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, what was it like at the start? Did you... You know, there was this outpour of, um, what was that like? You know? It, it, you know, it was an incredible feeling to be, to feel valued and supported at, uh, in that way by, by people around the country. And the reality, there's an unusual reality that, um, of, of working in A&E, um, I think we'll be surprised how often we're not thanked. And we don't, you know, we don't do it to be thanked, but I think people will be surprised how often we are treated quite rudely and uh, in not the nicest manner by people. Uh, that's, that's just part and parcel, unfortunately, of, of A&E life from time to time. So it was incredible to, sort of, to feel the, and we did all sort of feel the nation's sort of support behind us. Um, but the, it, it was odd in the hospital. We simply didn't know how many patients we were going to have who were going to be extremely unwell. There was a certain amount of, we didn't know how, uh, you know, how, how easily the virus transmitted how dangerous it would be we all had this sense that we were probably all going to get you know through our work we we are we were going to be exposed to to covid so there's lots of levels at which it throws in uncertainty um and and uh, there's it's relentless uh, relentless sort of wearing down by it perhaps is, is a way to describe it i mean did i mean yeah you don't have to answer this next one again um but uh, did you have a get covid from it all just being constantly exposed to, to the virus um i mean i i i'm certain um i'm certain i've had covid um i uh, um i i came on well with sort of textbooks or symptoms of it and things um you know we are exposed in a and e we certainly in in spring of last year and summer and i guess into the autumn of last year we had lots of patients who we dealt with on a one-to-one -one basis who we actually know um you know did did, did have the virus um, but the but the hospital and the NHS are very sort of sensible about this in terms of wanting to protect the workforce and test people and make sure everyone's okay. Um, I guess I guess earlier on we were all very concerned. Well, we all knew we were going to be exposed to it, and no one knew what the death rates would be in things. And so there was that sense of trepidation. But yeah, I mean, I. I'm 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 still exposed to it from time to time at work. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'm sure. Yeah, I do, I'm sure I've. Oh, wow, uh, did did any? I mean, 
it is also kind of, I don't know, this is, this is a silly question, but did any of your training, once again, did that come into effect at all? From Did we able to transfer those military skills into this part, into this last year? You know, I mean, because this last year, it's like you said, it hasn't been like anything else. I mean, it's just been, it's been completely different. It's just been a completely new experience for the entire world. Um, I think you, you know, there were some very sort of similarities um, in that, you know, we spent, you know, Rupert will remember these sort of, you know, we trained in the army for what was called nuclear, biological and chemical warfare. Uh, it's, it's, it's changed name, but, you know, people think of gas masks and the protective suits and things. And, and I remember having this wry moment where we were being sort of trained up to use, you know, the new visor, the new gowns and all this kind of thing. And I was just chuckling. It's like, you know, it was, and it reminded me of preparing and practicing these sort of things in the desert, you know, you know, in, in Iraq. Um, I, again, I, I, it's interesting trying to sort of, uh, I've recently had my, my appraisal at work for how I've got on over the last year. And one of the things that cropped up there was how I, what sort of place I did COVID in my life over the last year. And, and I tried to sort of, or, or the way I think of it, I, I don't want to give COVID to, more place than it deserves in my life, but I recognise that it's there. And I think we all, to a different extent, had different sort of coping mechanisms and different ways of becoming comfortable with it. Um, and and they're absolutely, in some ways, it seems entirely the same as being in Iraq in a difficult situation. Physically, it's different. The risks are different, but it it's the the, the internal feeling is the same. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rupert, I don't know whether you you had any questions. You no, I, just, I mean it, it's it's interesting that. You know, the, the similarities are there, but I imagine, you know, you talked about the emotional stress of it all. Um, in the military, your training takes you through a number of procedures and exercises and so on and puts you in an increasingly difficult situation, which sort of prepares you for it. Um, and the whole nation, not just the NHS, but, you know, everybody was unprepared, really um for covid um and therefore a lot of people weren't ready weren't trained not necessarily in the nhs to cope with this separation from friends and so on you see it you know every time there's a little chink you know you can have two people outdoors everybody <laughs> hurtles around um and it's that what i find extraordinary about it is in some ways the it is clearly taking a big emotional toll on some parts of society. Um, it must be taking an emotional toll on, on the NHS because they're dealing with it every day uh, and going to home to their families at night. And that, that must be different for you, Nick. You know, you, you've done all the operations, isolated from your family, and then going back to it later clean if you if you see what I mean you know rather than what you are must be doing now is is you know you're going home to your family uh, and you're trying to deal it emotionally in a family environment as yeah, opposed it, to a free family environment if you see what I mean. it's very, yeah it's a very different thing and I, when when they sort of last March um I I'd had a week's leave and I was going back into the hospital really starting up and I had a long chat with my wife about how we sort of managed. We just didn't know what the risk was going to be and how we'd manage it. And 
and uh, Kat grew up in Zimbabwe in sort of civil war, civil war and things in the late 70s. So, so she has quite a sort of to, you know, very sort of sensible view about risk and how he managed it and things. And I actually moved into the hospital accommodation for the first few weeks or so, just so that I could, um, just because we didn't know how dangerous it was going to be, it made sense for me to try and reduce the risk to my family by, by living in hospital, simple accommodation and being removed from home for a bit. Um, but you're absolutely right. It, it, it's hard sort of flip-flopping between being exposed to it at, on a work basis and actually... I'm glad I've been able to go to work. I, I, I'm glad I've been able to get, you know, work has, um, work gets me into another environment, gets me into a large group of people who I get on with. I think if I'd been in a different job and stuck at home, I would have found it, it very, very difficult. Um, but it, 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 yeah, there are times, um, that, you know, there's certainly times that uh, the relentless toll of it, it does that, you know, has an impact on my life. There have been times where I've been quite sort of sullen, probably quite grumpy. Some would say that's normal for me. <laughs> I'm a bit more than normal. Um, it, it it does have an impact absolutely on one's home, one, one's home life, and it's a it's a very sort of intense, distilled version of the personal difficulties of working in healthcare and how much it takes out of you. Oh, yeah. Wow! Wow! I think Rupert's question there has led on quite nicely to my other que- my other questions. You know, because you know, as a military family charity, we understand the importance of family, and we just wanted to know, you know, ask you a few questions. You know, about you know, um, we wanted to know what your favourite family holiday was because I think you know, it's you know, I think we'll try and end it on a p- more positive note. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so we. Do you mean when I grew up as a child? You know what? Um, it, you know what? It can be because you had such an interesting childhood. I'm actually going to ask it twice: once when you were a child, and once recently. <laughs> yeah. okay. so, so we, um, one of the you know one of the holidays I remember most vividly from my childhood was um, we were living in Germany, as I said, sort of west Western Germany in the early 80s when the Cold War was still going on, and we went to Switzerland for um, for a summer holiday for about two weeks, and uh, we. Uh, uh, flat in um, uh, in a town just outside Geneva. It was beautiful summer weather, and we, and we went walking. And it was a, it, it's not a, you know, we drove down, we piled into the car, me and my brothers, and my parents, uh, in a sort of hot eight-hour drive through continental Europe. We arrived there. Um, there was a lot of sibling rivalry in the car. We all arrived all quite fed up with each other. Um, and uh, I, I had a broken arm at the time, and. Uh, one of these sort of things that passes into family folklore that I, we, we arrived and we had to load the car and uh, get everything into the flat. And I sort of cradled in my, in my sort of broken arm this large pot of Marmite. And as I went up the stairs, I inevitably dropped it and it caused a huge sort of family scene. <laughs> However, we had a lovely family holiday. We didn't fall out. Uh, it's, it's, you know, that sort of seared inexorably in my mind. Um, getting away and enjoying the fresh air of the Swiss Alps and w- was fantastic. Um, and perhaps, again, perhaps for the m- more more recently, we actually went um, we actually went on a skiing holiday in January of last year, shortly before COVID, and um, and to to the French Alps. And we'd been very busy for a number of years, and hadn't been able to go on a holiday for a number of years. And we just had the most fantastic time, and it was the biggest sort of contrast to. 
come back and suddenly being sort of struck by the COVID pandemic. So oh, for wow. me, both involved in the but both involved in the out. That's my cold, wet comfort zone. But, um... <laughs> I mean, how important was that? Um, you know, because being being so busy, we we see all, you know this all the time with families coming to us who are just so busy. How important was it just having that time then, when you are so busy? Just have that week away. And I mean, how important was it for you? Because I imagine A&E is so stressful, so intense. It's a and an interesting job. I mean, it's um, the, the, the it, it's, it's, it's not all as intense as maybe be in TV shows and things. Or, you know, the, the variety and the, the unpredictability of the things that stand out for me. You know, there is no such thing as a typical day, but over a typical period of time, you know, we'll deal with everything from lots of broken ankles to lots of people who are having heart attacks or strokes and everything in between. Um, it, it, it's really important to get sort of downtime from from a job like that. And it, I, I find it quite often takes a good few days to unwind if I've had a sort of long run of shifts. Um, and the other aspect of it is A&E is open 24 hours a day. So it's impossible to get into a sleep routine with shifts. You know, my shifts are to, I think, 10 or 11 different times throughout. Um, so light, so it can be quite settling. And actually just having a week where I knew when I was going to bed and when I was going to get up and what I was going to be doing and just enjoying the fresh air and the exercise was just, it was just perfect, you know. We needed, I was probably getting a bit grouchy in January of last year because a and is pretty busy over December and Christmas. And it was just the perfect sort of fresh air, get some exercise, eat lots of cheese and uh, have some <laughs> wine. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I've only got one question left because I don't want to um because we are approaching the hour. I did, you know. Um do you have can you spare like five, five, six more minutes or do you do you, do you need to go? No, no, oh. please do. Oh brilliant. Well um before I ask my final question, I was gonna give it back to Rupert whether he had any questions or anything he he was wanted to add before I asked my lovely final question. <laughs> no, I don't think the only thing is extraordinary. Um bold decision. It's a bold switch, I think we used to call it, didn't we? Uh, into a new career. Do you look back and go, maybe I should have stayed, or or you're happy with the choice? Difficult one. Um, wh where do I feel I fit in? I I still feel, I still feel I'm an army officer more than I feel I'm a doctor. You know, so I've been working as a doctor just under nine years now. Um, you know, I stayed on. I, I, when I left the regular army, I joined the army reserves and I stayed on in that for a few years until recently. And so I sort of, I didn't totally give up being in the army whilst I was at university at medical school and, and beyond. Um, it, it's still, I often have this sense that I'm a misfit in medicine in that, you know, most of my colleagues who are doctors went into it when they were straight from school, straight from university after junior age. Um, and I, I think it, 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 you know, whilst I enjoy, I, I, you know, I love what I do there. Um, I just personally, I kind of still, if I would say, what am I, how, how do I feel about myself? It's an army officer rather than a doctor. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting sort of balance. Um, it's, it's quite hard to sort of explain the, the sort of, um, how it makes me feel about it, but, um, would I, you know, I, I, I had a fantastic time in the army. I, I, 
I'm glad I didn't become a doctor straight from 20, when I was 22. I'd have missed out on some amazing times in the army and it would not have been the right time for me to do it. I think I came into it in the right time of my life. I came, made, came into medicine at a very complicated time in my life, not straightforward. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a mixed, mixed, mixed answer, that one, really, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, it's fascinating because, you know, you and I have known each other really since the Hong Kong visit, I think. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, charging around on the other side of the world. And then I, I missed out on it, Iraq because I was getting too old. And, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's extraordinary, you know, unbeknownst to everyone here, but sort of quick chat beforehand. Actually, you know, it could have been yesterday that we saw it. Which is which is great, pretty great. So uh, no other than to thank you, Nick, for putting putting yourself in the spot. Um, extraordinary tale. Thank you, Rupert. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Oh, well, all I have is one last question for you, Nick. It's a lovely question. We ask all our guests this, and it is: What does family mean to you? What does family mean to me? Yeah, I. I've... I would not be able to do any of the things that I've done in my life in the military or in medicine without the most incredible family support at home. And, you know, the, from an early age, moving around the world, being part of this incredibly warm family where we'd go off and do exciting things and I'd, I'd fall out with my brothers and pick up the people in my relationship with my brothers, um, to be able to, you know, we'll have the most fantastic home life here in Scotland, a very, the internet is pretty terrible. We're caught in a valley. It's semi-rural. It's about four miles off the, the main road. We have a very peaceful existence existence here. And um, so I live here with Kat and uh, her daughter, Sasha. And I've got three other children who come here. And you know we have the most fantastic, calming family time in the midst of changing challenges around the world. Oh, brilliant. Well, I mean, this has been a fantastic podcast. I've been really, I mean, I've really enjoyed this. So interesting. Um, and I think, I mean, I can speak for everyone when I say thank you so much for everything that you've been doing over this past year, you know, for, from the, for the whole British public. Thank you so much. Because, I mean, you guys have been on the front line. We've just been indoors. So thank you so much for everything that you've done, Nick. Thank you. That's very kind of you to take Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I just want to say thank you to everyone for listening to episode 16 of the Give Us Time podcast. Please make sure to like and subscribe to air the Give Us Time channels. Um, share this as well. And thank you everyone so much for listening. And we'll be back next time with former Royal Marine Mark Ormond. So we'll be interviewing Mark. He is a triple amputee. So we'll be talking about his, um, his time his recovery, him leaving the military and how he's gone on to raise hundreds of thousands of pounds for charity. So make sure you follow us so you don't miss out on that next podcast. Thank you everyone for listening and have a lovely day. Bye-bye.